Strange musique offre Reality. Check of the spheres on JR. Every Thursday at 6pm through to 7pm. Jeremy Olsop and Robert Bonchek presenting music for you to be transported. Music for deep listening and sublime enjoyment. Find us on Facebook. Just head to www.facebook.com forward slash Radio. That's two R's. Air Radio. You are listening to Air 88 FM. Listening to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia, streaming on live on the internet at j-air.com.au and on 88 FM. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. My first guest today is Professor Kobe Michael, senior researcher at the Institute for. National Security Studies in Israel, and the Editor-in-Chief of Strategic Assessment, a multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary peer-reviewed journal on topics related to Israel's national security and Middle East strategic issues, which is published in Hebrew and English by the Institute for National Security Studies. Copy Michael signalled the need for Israel to address the ever-present terrorist threat in Jenin before Israel's recent major assault that aimed at eliminating the terrorist infrastructure in that area, also targeting Iranian proxies operating there. I welcome back Professor Kobe Michael to the Israel Connection. It's great to be speaking with you once again, Kobe. My pleasure. So, Kobe, there's been a lot of media attention on the foray by IDF forces into Jenin. Uh, just two weeks ago, now, just before it took place, you wrote a piece that appeared in Mosaic magazine titled Israel Must Respond Forcibly to the Violence in Janine." Now, one could say that you predicted exactly what happened in Janine, forewarning that it was necessary for Israel to go into Janine. You seem to have a crystal ball, Kobe. I think that what happened uh, two weeks ago, actually, house and garden operation, so-called, it's something that should have been a um, long time ago because Janine, uh, since uh, March 22, became to be um, a sort of um, hornet nest, okay, with regard to terrorism, a center of gravity with regard to terrorism, uh, due to several reasons, mainly because of the vacuum that was created by the Palestinian Authority that actually left the area. Secondly, because Israel was not, uh, I would say, uh, aware enough to what is happening there. And the idea that uh, Iran and Hezbollah behind the scenes actually worked pretty hard in order to build the capacities of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad that was uh, not a marginal Palestinian terror organization, but a small Palestinian terror organization, mainly in comparison to Hamas, but it is, uh, I would say, a pure Iranian proxy. From the Iranian uh, point of view, 
the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, as well as Jenin and the entire Palestinian Front, is another important component in the in the deterrence equation vis-a-vis Israel or the Iranian strategy vis-a-vis Israel. The Iranians are trying to build several fronts against Israel that would be um, able to to be operated simultaneously. And the Palestinian front is a very substantial, very significant front in the Iranian eyes. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad in this regard is a very significant player in the Iranian eyes. And it was, was an opportunity for the Iranians to strengthen the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And suddenly it became to be a very uh, strong and influential organization that acted, operated from Jenin area and inspired, the, I would say, the entire West Bank, or at least the, the northern districts of uh, the, the Palestinian territories in the, in the West Bank. And uh, we found ourselves in a terror campaign where the Israeli reaction to this terror campaign was very effective in the operational level because we achieved a very significant uh, achievements. Um, we killed many terrorists, we captured many terrorists, we prevented terror attacks from Jenin area and from Nablus area. But at the end of the day, we haven't succeeded to create a strategic impact, which means, first of all, to stop the terror campaign, and secondly, to prevent Palestinian youngsters to join to the terror cycles and uh, to to prevent uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad from building uh, its uh, capacities. We found ourselves with a very significant gap between the operational achievements and the required strategic impact. And uh, this was the reason that we were forced to uh, to go or to launch such an operation that was launched uh, launched uh, two weeks ago. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, it is still not uh, the end of the game. It improved the situation. I think that it facilitated the, the way for the Palestinian Authority to come back or to regain a sort of uh, a control in the Jenin area. But there is still a long road in front of Israel and the Palestinian Authority in order to, um, I would say, to go back to the situation of uh, something like two years ago and to normalize the the area. So you wrote uh, further uh, on the INSS website that a broad military operation in Janine should be prepared and you went on to say that the military move must be significant, its results unequivocal both to neutralize the terrorist infrastructure in the area and to produce the required psychological effect. So Israel's gone part of the way, but not the whole way yet. So uh, you seem to suggest that with the cooperation that's building again with the PA and uh, the idea of threatening to go in again, that this really is going to make a, a change to the dynamic. I really hope so, because I see some very positive and even surprising, in my eyes, developments uh, in, in, in the Palestinian uh, arena. Because I'm asking myself, uh, talking about uh, the, the last visit of Abu Mazen in Jenin, okay? He didn't visit there for 11 years. I'm asking myself how it comes that uh, suddenly the Palestinian Authority was able 
to send uh, its uh, security apparatuses to Jenin in order to prepare um, the visit, in order to uh, you know to, to clean the area, in order to uh, um, um, in order to assure uh, security and uh, to make all the preparations towards uh, Abu Mazen's uh, visit, and how it comes that uh, they are able doing that, and how it comes that uh, Abu Mazen suddenly goes out of the Mukata to Jenin, okay? Why uh, he didn't do it uh, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago? Uh, on the one hand, uh, I think that this is a very positive development. It shows or indicates that the Palestinian Authority wants and capable, okay? But on the other hand, uh, I think that it's very worrying because, uh, <laughs> as I as I told you, I ask myself why why it hasn't happened two years ago or three years ago, and uh, I don't have good answers, and I have only I would say um, some maybe um, speculations, okay, um, and uh, but it reminds me uh, Arafat uh, in the in the first beginning of the second intifada, okay. When actually he tried to 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 ride on the back of the tiger, and he thought that uh, if he will enable some violence against uh, against Israel, violence which means terrorism, okay, uh, that will be conducted by uh, by Hamas or uh, by the Tanzim, okay, maybe uh, it will be um, a sort of a tool to pressure Israel to make more concessions or to change its policy towards the Palestinians and to gain more achievements in the in the so-called, uh, I would say, uh, negotiation or diplomatic path vis-à-vis uh, -vis Israel. And uh, and I thought maybe uh, Abu Mazen, maybe Abu Mazen thought that uh, this is also an opportunity to enable the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas to operate uh, terror against Israel, and this will pressure Israel and uh, will uh, will enable him to remain um, remote, you know, from the from the events. He has no responsibility. Then uh, the Israelis will be forced to call him to come and to save them, okay, the Israelis. And this will uh, strengthen him. This will um, put him in a, in, a, in a better position. I don't know. It, it is a speculation, okay? But I think that uh, going back to your question, I think that uh, if what we see in Jenin since his uh, visit there, and by the way, it's not only in Jenin; it is in the in the other in the other uh, Palestinian cities in the West Bank as well. I think that this is a this is a sort of a very positive indication, and I think that uh, Abu Mazen, uh, when I'm trying also to to to, to answer myself, what brought Abu Mazen to to visit Jenin. I think, and, and mainly after the, the the IDF operation, because you know uh, this is something that puts him in a very critical position vis-à-vis -vis the Palestinian constituency. How it comes that he comes to Jenin only after uh, the, the the operation of the IDF that opened the way for his visit. It means that he cooperates, collaborates with the with the occupation. It it is not so simple, not so easy for him to to do it uh, immediately after the operation, but he did it. Maybe maybe I I I want to be very cautious in this regard. Maybe we are facing now the beginning of the Palestinian Altelena. It means that Abu Mazen at the end of the day understood that this is a question of to be or not to be. It means that he understood that the threat of Hamas 
and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, but mainly Hamas, that challenges him for and his authority for more than a decade, okay, suddenly understood that it is much more serious than it thought before. That if he will not do something now and right now, there will be no Palestinian authority anymore. Okay, and all of his historical legacy will disappear. I think that he really and truly believes that the existence of the Palestinian Authority is a very meaningful, significant Palestinian achievement, and he wants to keep it. Therefore, it was a waking call for him, and uh, he decided to come to Jenin and to use the opportunity in order to signal Okay, the Palestinian constituency to signal Hamas, to signal the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Here I am. Here is the Palestinian Authority, and we are going to regain our control all over the Palestinian territories under the Palestinian Authority uh, responsibility in the West Bank. And this is eventually what they are doing, at least in the last uh, three, four days and not only in Jenin. Just yesterday and the, the day before yesterday, the Palestinian security apparatuses are working, I would say, pretty harshly, pretty harsh in Tulkarem, Nablus, Jenin, Hebron, Jericho, Ramallah, okay, all the, the, the major, the big cities in the, in the Palestinian territories, and they are arresting people and the operators of, of Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and just yesterday in Jenin, there was a very big demonstration of supporters of Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad against the Palestinian Authority. It means that something has happened on the ground. And if it will continue like that, and if Israel will be wise enough in order to use this opportunity to add some additional, to do some additional steps vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian Authority that will strengthen the Palestinian Authority together with some regional players and the American administration's support, it might be a game-changer. In the reality that we uh, used to know for uh, the, last, uh, the last years and mainly since uh, May 22. But this will tell us. Right, of Abbas to go uh, into Janine because of the... Uh antipathy uh, towards him that was being expressed. The other thing I heard, um, actually I heard he hadn't been in Janine actually since 2005. There's a conflicting report to what you said where he has actually been there a bit more recently. But no, nonetheless, he hasn't been there for a long time, which uh, makes it appear as though he doesn't really care as much as he should by not visiting uh, his own people. Now you refer to what is happening in Janine in what you've written and as in, uh, perhaps more widely in the West Bank as the Lebanonization of the West Bank. Can you explain what you mean by this when you use this expression? With regard to the Palestinian Authority? Yeah, the, the, the trend as to what is going on in the West Bank, it's like uh, I think you're describing it as becoming uh, similar to what happened in Lebanon. Ah, uh, the Lebanonization, yes. In, uh, in the 1980s. Actually, I wrote it... Uh, Yes, I wrote it. I wrote it with regard to Jenin area, 
and it was before the visit of uh, Abu Mazen, what we actually saw there, and it was um, even before the, the, the military, I wrote it before the, the, the operation, the IDF operation there, what actually was there, it was um, a no, no man land, okay? I mean, uh, there was no Palestinian authority, no Israeli authority, and actually the area was ruled the area, I mean, Janin area, okay, was ruled by gangs, by by the the, the militias, by the the armed militias, be it the Palestinian Islamic Jihad or some local organizations like uh, Janin brigades, okay, or uh, Al Aqsa brigade uh, of uh, the Fatah or uh, Hamas. Everything was based on the rule or the power of the gun. And uh, the militia that had uh, more guns or more manpower, armed manpower, uh, was the stronger player in the in the region. Where most uh, we are talking about uh, some hundreds of people, okay, armed people that ruled many uh, thousands of people, innocent people that were hostages. Uh, I mean, they they were captured by the by the armed militias. There was uh, no order and no rule there. In a sense, it reminded me the days of um, the, the first 80s, uh, after the beginning of the first Lebanon war, when Israel uh, entered to, to Lebanon. And uh, after uh, three, four uh, months, we found ourselves in uh, mainly in the area of uh, South Lebanon with uh, some militias, you know, our militias, uh, those days, uh, the, the Shiite militia Amal uh, still existed, okay? Hezbollah was not there yet, but only the seeds of Hezbollah. We had the, the Shiite militias, and we had the, the Christian militias, and the Druze militias, and uh, some other militias, and they were fighting each other and fighting against Israel. There was no central authority or central government that ruled the area. At the end of the day, the victims were... The, the the innocent civilians, you know, that were not armed, but they were the majority. They lived there, but they were under the the rule or under the influence of the armed militias. And this is exactly what the situation in Janine area. Armed militias sometimes they are fighting each other for hegemony, for influence, for for gaining more power, you know, more resources, and so on and so forth. And they use uh, the local uh, population, the, the innocent civilians, in order to to fight the other militias, or they use them as human shield in order to attack Israel from Jenin area. They operate from the, the, the local and the civil uh, population, from um, public infrastructures, as, as schools, mosques, clinics, because they learned from Hamas in the Gaza Strip uh, that uh, by using uh, uh, human shields and by using the, the public locations or sites, they actually might gain some, uh, they score points later on because they will drag Israel to attack them and uh, to cause uh, civilian casualties. And this can be used in the international media and vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the, uh, the international community and some international tribunals in order to, to push Israel to the corner and in order to blame Israel in war crimes and so on and so forth. In, in one world uh, that uh, we, we say in Hebrew, Balagan, yes, it's a big, a big chaos that they created there. And uh, this reminded me Lebanon, and I, I wrote that this is a Lebanonization process of Jenin area. 
that if it will not be treated correctly and uh, very rapidly, uh, there will be a spillover to the other districts of the of the West Bank, and Israel might find it itself in front of a very uh, critical and dangerous situation where all the West Bank will be Lebanonized. Okay, and uh, I think that now we are in a in a better situation in Jenin area because the Palestinian Authority is present there right now okay when we are talking the 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 palestinian security apparatuses are still in jenin not in the refugee camp which is the the heart of the hornet uh, nest there but they are in jenin area and this is something and they are not afraid to be present in the streets they are in nablus and in the other uh, big cities in the west bank and they crossed the rubicon in a sense okay they decided that now they are going to regain control, security control, and sovereignty in the in the Palestinian territories. And I hope that they will succeed in doing that. I hope that Israel will be able to facilitate or at least to help the Palestinian Authority to do that. And I hope that we will come back to uh, not only security cooperation between both sides, but uh, I hope that uh, this will bring both sides back to a sort of a political track. I'm not talking, of course, of a final status agreement, but at least a sort of a new political uh, track or path. Although I think that Netanyahu will face some severe difficulties with some parts of his coalition in this regard. It will not be easy for him. I wanted to say to you, though, probably that just 17% of Palestinians are satisfied with Abbas's leadership, according to a Palestinian public opinion poll in June, and 80% want him to resign. So you're you're virtually saying that Israel should be propping up a regime that is corrupt and unpopular and uh, and weak. Yes, this is not something new. Actually, we are talking about a process or a development uh, of, uh, I would say, at least. Uh, the last uh, decade, it, be- it began uh, 10 years ago or so, and uh, in the last three, four years, the deterioration becomes more and more uh, crucial, okay? I mean, the deterioration the, the with regard to the legitimacy and the popular support, the public support that the Palestinian Authority has in the eyes of the Palestinian constituency. The Palestinian Authority is perceived as corrupted, as uh, inefficient, very unpopular, and uh, as uh, as you said, according to the to the polls, eighty uh, percent of the Palestinian uh, people in the West Bank uh, prefer that uh, Abu Mazen will resign. And even worse than that, I think that in the last poll uh, of June that uh, was made by uh, Khalil uh, Shkaki, it was the first time that the majority, I mean over 50% of the Palestinian constituency in the West Bank, said that the Palestinian uh, Authority became to be not only a strategic liable for uh, the Palestinian people, but the Palestinian Authority should be dissolved, <laughs> should be, uh, should not be there at all. The, I think that this is a precedent. I mean, it, it is the first time that uh, we have reached to uh, this uh, percentage. And this is a very, uh, very worrying indication with regard to the Palestinian Authority and its capacity actually to, to, to work and uh, to be a, a, an efficient sovereign power in the Palestinian territories.
the Palestinian Authority, as well as the other Arab countries that surround the state of Israel here in the region, is not a democratic entity. It was never a democratic entity, okay? Even when they have uh, twice democratic elections, it was not a democratic entity. It is another tyrannic regime or authoritarian regime, another model of uh, Arab uh, authoritarian regime, the expectation that the Palestinian Authority will uh, uh, will wake up tomorrow morning uh, and will decide that uh, it is the, a democratic uh, entity, uh, it is an illusion. We have to find a way to manage with a non-democratic entity which lives beside us. It would have been much easier for Israel to manage with a democratic neighbor or with a democratic entity, okay? But this is not the situation, and we have uh, to live uh, with uh, with uh, this fact. If the Palestinian Authority will be able to provide the public good and human security to its constituency, and if Israel will be able to redraw the, the political horizon for the Palestinian constituency, by creating uh, again, or uh, by um, by bringing the Palestinian Authority to to a sort of a political process, which is backed by regional players, uh, where the Palestinian Authority is uh, another component in the new regional architecture. All of these will create a more more positive, I would say, view for the for the Palestinian constituency and this might increase or uh, this might improve the legitimacy and the support for the Palestinian uh, authority it will not change dramatically the the reality that we know today at least not in a week not in a month not in a year okay but it is a positive indication it is a positive change that might create a different atmosphere that in the long run will enable both sides together with the, the other regional players to change the, the reality in a more significant manner. It is a question of time, it is a question of political ability and will of both sides to re-engage in a political process, to understand that there is a need for a lot of patience and there is a need uh, for, I would say, um, an understanding that things will not be resolved in the immediate future. Even if uh, they will not be resolved, they can be more positive or they can be managed differently for the sake of both people, for the sake of uh, all the people here in the region, Israelis and Palestinians. I really do hope that uh, what we see in the last days is a different thing. That we, in, in comparison to, to the things that we used to know in the last years uh, in the Palestinian Authority, I don't want to be too optimistic, okay? I want to remain with my two legs on the ground, but I think that I see some different and positive indications in the Palestinian side, and I hope that they will be leveraged in, uh, in a positive manner. So there's a few ifs and maybes there from you, Kobe. Uh, but uh, at the end, at the end of it all, I think you see a bit of light coming um, from between the trees. And I think there's uh, a little change in the air because it seems like uh, Biden's finally decided to invite Netanyahu to come to America. Things are are changing, but let's not 
let's not divert from what we've been talking about. We have to remember the Iranian role, okay? The the, the, the Iranian hand that shakes the cradle behind the scenes. We have to, rem- to remember it. The Israeli-Palestinian issue is a heavy issue by itself, but it cannot be disconnected from the broader context of the of the Middle East, and it cannot be disconnected from the Iranian involvement, okay, and the Iranian influence, and therefore it is very crucial, very important, not only for Israel and for the Palestinians, but for the American administration and for the other regional players to understand the importance of tackling the Iranian aspirations and the Iranian involvement here in the region and in the Palestinian arena. This is the time to unite efforts, regional efforts, together with international efforts in order to weaken Iran and not to strengthen Iran, because a stronger Iran is much more dangerous Iran, and it is much more influential Iran, even in the Palestinian arena, and I think that the consequences are pretty understood and clear. Thank this you, is good. You're reminding us of the uh, the bogeyman in the Middle East. Uh, we can't. Uh, we shouldn't be forgetting. Yes. Thank exactly. you once again, Kobe. Great uh, talking to you today. My pleasure. See you next time. You've been listening to Professor Kobe Michael, senior researcher at the Institute for National Security Studies in Israel, talking about the recent spate of violence emanating from the West Bank and from Janine in particular. Beersheba Vision preceded my show today. It was on from 2 to 3 p.m. with Barry Rogers at the helm. Listeners interested in Christian Zionism, take note. It turns out that my next guest was also a guest on Beersheba Vision. Have a listen. Israel, going back some time, was having serious problems on the southern border with Egypt, particularly the Sinai, in which uh, Hamas terrorists were coming freely across the border, perpetrating terror attacks. And also an increasing number of illegal migrants were, economic migrants, were marching or trudging across Egypt in order to come into Israel to try and find work opportunity. It got to such an extent that in fact certain parts of Israel became absolutely flooded by migrants from Africa, took the jobs of the uh, underclass of the local Israeli population, or even some of the Arabs, because they were prepared to work for less. And it was causing also a lot of social problems with crimes, drugs, etc. An early uh, Benjamin Netanyahu government decided it was time to construct a border fence between Israel and Egypt, particularly around the Sinai, to stop both terrorists and an unbridled uh, flood of uh, migrants. He was overruled by the Supreme Court that said it was unreasonable. And it took uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's government another two years to give the Supreme Court whatever information they needed in order to climb down from this unreasonable course and uh, and construct it. But at that time, Israel, even today, certain areas of the Tel Aviv and other places are really swamped and it really has affected the income of uh, indigenous uh, Israelis over here. What you just heard was the inimical Barry Shaw in his customary role making political commentary 
about Israel on the Beersheba Vision Show on J Air. You can go to the podcast page on the J Air website to check out the whole interview with Barry Shaw. Now, Barry never holds back, and I've invited him to speak with me today, not about politics, but about sport. Yes. Now, as the FIFA Women's World Cup is about to kick off in Australia, as I say, I invited Barry to join me in a live conversation in which we will discuss the state of play with women's soccer in Israel, but also consider the amazing successes that Israel has recently had in the men's game. Now, I am uh, on Zoom, and uh, I've just been speaking with Barry on WhatsApp, and he seems to have had some problems finding the, the link. So I'll just put you on to some music while I see if I can sort Barry out. She is pretty, she is the belle of the facility She is a golden one, two, three Please would you tell me who is she? Albert Mooney says he loves her All the boys are fighting for her Knock on the door and ring out the bell So you know me true love, are you well? Out she comes as a white to snow Rings on her fingers and bells on her toes Old Johnny Murray says, says she'll die She doesn't get a fella with a roving eye I'll tell me ma when I go home The boys won't leave, the girls alone They pull me head and stormy me calm But that's alright till I go home She is handsome, she is pretty She is the belle of the facility I seem to have Barry now on the line. Are you there, Barry? I think he's just connecting to audio. We'll have him in a minute. I can see him, but we haven't quite got him. But what I... Uh, uh, look, I just want to say that uh, you're a, a soccer crazy. Nod your head. Uh, put your hand up, uh, Barry, if you agree. Uh, I think he's uh, going uh, off air again to try to uh, connect to me. So let's uh, have some music while... He's attempting to uh, come back online with me. We're on the verge of the FIFA Women's World Cup, which is the reason that I uh, brought you onto the phone conversation. So Barry, uh, I know that Barry's a soccer crazy because when Israel was competing in the under-19 FIFA World Cup and also the European under-21 championship, he was providing a detailed coverage of the games in which Israel was competing. Soccer is uh, clearly a a big thing in uh, Israel as far as males are concerned. Uh, The men's competition is is a big thing and there have been some 
very significant recent successes that Israel has achieved in these international sporting events. Listeners who were not aware of what was going on, Israel qualified for the FIFA World Cup for the first and only time in uh, 1970 when they uh, when they didn't didn't actually get past the group stage, losing one game and drawing twice and scoring one goal against Sweden in that competition. Now they also won the 1964 uh, AFC uh, Asian Cup before a forced relocation to UEFA, the uh, European competition. Uh, the under-19 tournament, which uh, was very successful, in, in which we saw Israel achieve a third place in that competition, all came about after the tournament was transferred from Indonesia to Argentina after Indonesia's refusal to allow Israel to participate. Now we're going to move to talk about uh, women's soccer because the uh, the Australian team is in the FIFA Women's World Cup, the Matildas, and uh, this is being talked up uh, quite a deal uh, in Australia with the first game happening tomorrow between uh, Ireland and Australia. Barry, I heard uh, you say something. Yeah, hello, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Look, we've uh, already been talking about, well, I've been talking about what's happening in uh, the competitions that, is, that Israel has been featuring in, the, namely the FIFA Under-19 and European Under-21 Championship. Uh, perhaps you want to comment how big this was for Israel in, in soccer, what it, what it means. Uh, first of all, David, I want to thank you for inviting me onto the show. It's nice to be talking about serious stuff like football rather than the politics and strategic affairs, <laughs> which is my main passion. Yeah, I thought I'd give you a, a change to do something fresh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. Well, first about with regards to football in Israel, I can sum it up this way, that uh, the, the women's soccer seriously lags behind. We're nowhere near even the Australian standard. Uh, women's soccer, I guess, is uh, notoriously uh, underfunded compared to its male counterpart. Um, and yes, uh, Israeli women players, and we do have some, say so we don't get paid enough, um, we have to work on the side. I would, uh, David, I would put it this way. Um, Women's soccer has to develop before there's any budget. It was the same with gymnastics or swimming when it came for women. Uh, women swimmers and women just gymnasts or even athletes, male or female, really not getting paid for being athletes. They have to get to a certain minimum sort of level before the money starts flowing. And, and this, obviously this takes some amateur dedication to get to a certain level in which uh, the sports authorities or the government take notice and then get funded. However, I want to tell you, I mean, there is a women's league in, in, in Israel and it's got nothing to do with, for instance, um, religious issues about uh, not like seeing women playing football. Uh, because in fact, one of the uh, the teams is uh, is of well, Jerusalem, and we have teams in uh, Tel Aviv, Beersheba, Jerusalem. I said Hadera, Ramat Sharon, Kiryat Gat is one of the champions, and Petah Tikva, um, and and actually, Hapoel uh, Jerusalem is one of the two top team women teams together with Kiryat Gat. Now, on a national level, we're not very good because the national team lost in April two 0 to Hungary. And we have to pay Armenia in September. Maybe we can make some progress. 
but you know, I think, like you said, um, it's it's uh, lagging behind even the uh, the men's uh, youth tournaments, if you want to call it that, because uh, Israel has a, a pretty good um, junior squad, both in the under 19s and the under 21s. The uh, under 21s reached reached the semi final in the FIFA European uh, Championships. Um, uh, and lost 3-0 to England in the 5th of uh, July uh, this month. So they're making progress. The Israel under-19s beat Finland 4-0, Faroe Islands 2-0, lost to Croatia, drew with Poland, beat Serbia and uh, drew with Latvia. So um, they're making improvements. But on a more professional level, I'll sum it up this way. Uh, we have a, an Israeli footballer, Manor Solomon, who have signed this season with Tottenham Hotspur, Spurs, known in England as the Yids. Uh, he signed from Fulham. So Premier League fans in Australia, if you're, I'm sure most, a lot of you have followed the England Premier League, will be able to see an Israeli player playing in the team with uh, Harry Kane and people like this in uh, Tottenham. Spurs, if they follow uh, Tottenham on the TV over there. Now, Barry, it would have been good to have uh, uh, a woman on this uh, segment if we're going to be talking about women's soccer. I must say that I uh, I reached out to an organisation in Israel. I don't know whether you're aware of them. They're called Athena. They're the centre for promoting women's sport in, in Israel. Um, they were founded in 2007 following a decision for, of the Minister for Education, Culture and Sport, uh, Miss uh, Limor Livnat, uh, which was due yeah. to a recommendation by the Public Committee for Promoting Women's Sport to create a multi-year program for this purpose. So this is what right. uh, happened. And uh, I don't know whether you're also aware that uh, back in uh, 1999, I think it was the turn of the, the century, um, Israel, um, the, the, the women's players or the women's sporting advocates actually went to uh, the courts in in Israel to ensure that uh, public funding for women's soccer was going to be at the same level as it is for the men's game, and they ended up uh, being uh, successful. So they, the public funding might, uh, might be on the same level, but the trouble is that uh, female sports in Israel, I suspect, are not uh, given that much coverage. They're largely an afterthought. Uh, women's soccer's probably ignored by the mainstream media, or I, th or I think I have heard that one channel in Israel does televise one of their games each week. Uh, they, they, find, they, find they are financially struggling because they don't get the level of sponsorship that the, the men's soccer gets, uh, and they're often facing a backlash from more conservative elements of society. So uh, with, all of, with all of that... Uh, they're, re they're really up against it and uh, clearly uh, if we're seeing women's uh, World Cup taking place now there's a lot of being a lot of things being said that uh, say that a lot of these things should be rectified and even heard a program on the radio this morning um, talking about uh, this uh, kind of issue as uh, we go into the FIFA World Cup with uh, Australia about to compete uh, tomorrow. Yeah, uh, okay, I'd like to um, give you sort of, as a football fan, and uh, 
not so much an expert on women's football, but I have done my homework on that. But um, while you- I'm doing it, before I do it, I do with your permission, <clears throat> I'd like to invite any of your listeners right now who are, are really football fanatics and particularly follow the English Premier League uh, to get a pen and paper ready because uh, before we end, I want to give your, um, your viewers who, are, who like uh, the Premier League a bit of a surprise and an invitation, but I'll deal, deal with it after we get the serious stuff of the Women's World Cup uh, done. Um, so, look, the, the review that I've got here is that um, uh, I... I think I know who we're going to be going through in the various groups. Uh, you want me to run through it or do you just want to keep my attention just on Australia and New Zealand? Uh, and let's not worry too much about uh, about uh, predicting what's, what will happen here, Barry. Let's, let's stick to uh, the uh, Israeli scene because there's uh, a lot of... Uh, Issues that are worthwhile discussing there, and uh, I'm only uh, using the um, what's happening with uh, FIFA here as a kind of a segue to talk about this subject. Yeah. But I, I do want to concentrate, given this is uh, what I do on this show, really what's happening in the uh, Israeli arena. And I, one thing I do want to uh, get you to comment on, because uh, you're a, a great supporter of Israel and what it does, but uh, there's a lot to, to say about uh, Israeli soccer that perhaps isn't that nice. And I'm speaking about uh, racism, especially as exhibited by uh, uh, this uh, Beitar Jerusalem team. And and apparently there was an incident only uh, last month where they were playing home a home game at uh, Jerusalem's Steady Teddy Stadium and uh, they, there was an Arab player that was subjected to racist chants and during, during a Euro 2024 tournament qualifier that Israel played against Andorra. And uh, according to Channel 12 News, the squad uh, made a, re- a request after fans booed the Israeli midfielder Mohamed Abu Fane, calling him a terrorist during the team's 2-1 win over Andorra. So what, uh, what, what is going on here? There's obviously uh, a lot um, that's perhaps uh, symptomatic of uh, something that's underlying in, uh, in Israeli society. We're, we're treading, treading now into the political sphere a little bit. What do you think about this, uh, this area of concern? Racism in, racism in, in, in Israeli football is really confined to a small group of um, Stupid racist support uh, Beitar uh, Jerusalem, um, and uh, but I can tell you in all the other uh, uh, teams in um, in the Israeli league, including my own in Netanya, there there are players. Let me put it this way: the 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 Israeli champion team, the Maccabi Haifa, have. Uh, not only uh, Arab players in the team, they also have some uh, in non-Jewish uh, African players in their team. Uh, and they recently uh, played in uh, Malta, where they beat um, uh, the Spartans over there in the uh, UEFA uh, Champions League uh, game. Um, and uh, um, the uh, the few the Spar supporters that were for Malta were, uh, were waving Palestinian flags. Um, however, we uh, Haifa beat them, and they, they progress into the next round with, as I said, uh, uh, several other players. I want to add that to that is we I mentioned earlier about the Israeli under twenty ones and the under nineteens. There are Arab players in our national leagues in 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 those teams as well as in the senior league. Um, 
so racism does exist, as unfortunately it does in a lot of other places as well. But it really is localized when it comes to football over here in Israel. Um, but but me, but about, if you want to talk about racism, let's talk about it on a grand scale, because Israel is grouped now in Europe. Uh, and this is simply because of racism, anti-Jewish, anti-Israel racism, because Israel was boycotted out of Asia where the FIFA had put uh, Israel into the Asian group, and we were kicked out of Asia simply because of anti-Semitism and racism, if yes. you want to put it on a global scale, in the 1970s. And actually, the Arabs and the Muslim countries did us a favor, because quite frankly, our football has improved on a senior level since playing in Europe. You know, having said that, Israel hasn't qualified for the World Cup since 1970. So we're still hoping and looking for improvement, even with the addition of uh, money. Uh, you were talking about that aspect. Of course, another aspect to do with money in the sport is it shouldn't just be confined to uh, with government money. In Israel, it's been political because in sport, there are two main branches. It's either Maccabi or, or Hapoel. Hapoel has been funded um, since the virtue of the birth of Israel by the uh, uh, Labour Labour Party or the Labour Movement, which is on the left, and Maccabi is being done by the central or right-wing political factor. But I think that's, and this carries on to today, if you see football teams or sports teams in Israel called Hapoel or Maccabi or whatever, uh, you know which side of political agenda they're on, so it shows its face that way as well. Yeah, you're referring to uh, a core of, uh, of racist uh, supporters that are really causing the problem. I think uh, they're referred to as uh, La Familia. They're the, they're the ones who are the uh, bad element in Beitar, Jerusalem, that engage in violent racist behaviour. Apparently they ran onto the pitch in a game that was on um, at uh, Haifa's Sami Ofer Stadium at which there was going to be a presentation because they won that game and uh, President Herzog was there to hand out um, the medals and uh, he had to be um, taken off the, the field uh, to, in, to protect him because of the players uh, storming on, onto the field and that has ended up that uh, Beitar Jerusalem have been penalised four points from the coming season's competition because of that and uh, the players who uh, won their medals were were told to come to uh, his hotel room or his some other venue in order to uh, get get the medals. So there's uh, yep. this club is seems to be a problem, that, and it's the trouble is that they've also uh, never signed an Arab player, and uh, fans have protested the addition of Muslim players to the team as well. So they they set a bad example because other teams in Israel, as you're suggesting, uh, are not of the same ilk. I'm very much for um, uh, football teams in Israel, anywhere else for that matter, with bad disciplinary problems to be uh, um, have some um, steps taken against them. And this goes beyond even sort of a financial fight. I think if, for instance, the, the things you're talking about, which is, again, confined to one team, which is Beto Jerusalem, continues, I think there ought to be a ban. I, I think they may get, they will only get the message, I think, uh, if there is a, a ban by the Israel Football Association, even for a full season, never mind a few games, 
but uh, say we will not tolerate this anymore and Beitar Yerushalayim will not be allowed to play in any of the senior leagues in the football. I, I think that does it. I mean, uh, having said that, I, I have arguments right now with my grandson, who I took to Istanbul with me to watch Manchester City win the Champions League, and he was claiming that the, the fans of Maccabi Haifa are more enthusiastic than even the City fans, which is unbelievable, of course, but there you have the, uh, the craziness of youth. Um, and uh, I, I saw that they tend to light flares and throw flares onto the pitch and do massive chanting, which is fine because they're not being racist, but whatever. But having seen that, I said, I asked him, you know, when they're throwing flares onto the football pitch, are they fined or punished? He said, I think they a financial fine, but they do it. And I said, you know, what's going to happen is Maccabi Haifa, if you carry on, are going to get actually a ban from playing in Europe if they carry on like that. So what happened, I don't know if any of your uh, followers saw the game between Maccabi Haifa and the Malta team, but the uh, fanatical fans, they were making a hell of a noise, which is great. It's by the players for most of the game. But in the first half, the referee had to stop the game because they threw players onto the pitch, which burnt the pitch. But then in the second half, it got even more rowdier and they were throwing more flares and flares in the part of the stadium where all the fans were. And for a second time, the referee stopped the game and the Maccabi Haifa players uh, were pleading with the uh, supporters to behave themselves before they were allowed on to finish the game. And I repeated to my grandson that Maccabi Haifa deserves to receive a ban because they never progress to the next round against more serious teams, senior uh, teams. And if the fans continue doing the stupid things and the dangerous things, uh, they will be banned from football. This has nothing to do with racism. It's to do with, don't to call it a hooliganism, but a lack of discipline. Uh, and I point out to him, although the uh, English uh, Premiership fans can be quite rowdy or whatever, there's a certain culture over there. And we saw it in Istanbul, where there was really, you know, a lot of jabbing and jeering going on between uh, Milan fans and City fans, even in the city centre. But there was never a hint of any violence. Now, Barry, I've only got a couple of minutes before uh, I'm going to have to uh, end our conversation. Uh, you wanted to do an ad for your uh, fantasy uh, football league. Is it possible to send me the details for that and I can publicise it on my Facebook page and we can finish up on another note? Well, I can do better than that because I'm going to invite the, your listeners, the ones who are crazy about Premiership football, to go on Facebook and look out for Natanya Fantasy League. Natanya Fantasy League. This is a private league that we set up uh, from the 12 million players who play Fantasy Premier Football every year, where you pick and design your own team. You get points for how they play. So you can now join... Uh, some football fanatics from Israel and from England. And uh, we'd like to welcome uh, some Australian New Zealanders to uh, join us. Go to detail, go to the Facebook page, Natanya Fantasy League, uh, and you'll find the details there. If you can't find anything, leave a comment and I will get back to you and I'll give you guidance and help how to get involved. Later on, we'll need your email address because you will receive on Natanya Fantasy League uh, Game Week uh, Bulletin after every game week. It's a fascinating addition to people's enjoyment uh, of the English uh, Premier League in which you can test your talent or lack of talent in being able to pick the your uh, 
best teams from a bunch of 15 players every week who actually play in the football league. Well, thanks very much for uh, that uh, advertisement there, Barry. And uh, let's uh, talk again, and hopefully next time we uh, we won't have a glitch like we uh, did this time. Thanks, thanks again, Barry. Well, listeners, I would like to apologise for the glitch on today's show in uh, not being able to get Barry Shaw on smoothly, but we did speak. And to finish the segment, I'd wanted to mention a story that is political. I speak of the Israeli team that was permitted to compete in the FIFA Video Game World Cup, currently taking place in Saudi Arabia. The team were not to hide their nationality at the competition, but they would avoid displays of it in public. Now, the Israeli national anthem Hatikva was played this week at a rehearsal for the opening ceremony for the video game version of the FIFA World Cup in Saudi Arabia, but the Saudis reportedly prevented the anthem from being played during the ceremony itself. At the general rehearsal for the opening ceremony of the FIFA E World Cup Finals, the three gamers from Israel were filmed singing the national anthem and holding the Israeli flag. But according to Khan News, the Saudis decided at the last moment not to broadcast teams with their anthems and also refused to hand over a recording of the rehearsal to the Israeli delegation. Now, the Saudi authorities had penned a letter stressing that all participants would be allowed in the country without specifying Israelis, without needing to specify Israelis separately. The sad news is that the Israeli team named Yuval competing in Group B in the competition are coming last by a country mile. Efrat Lachter, Israel's first female foreign war correspondent, visited the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia last week and heard firsthand how peace with Palestinians must come before normalisation with the Jewish state. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection. Shut up.